Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Open with me to the letter of Jude. I'm going to read the first, I believe, we're actually going to read through verse 10. Um, And then I'll kind of give us a quick recap, and then we'll dive into where we're at today. We've been in a study here through the letter of Jude. I believe we've covered the first seven verses so far. We're going to read through verse 10 today, because that's where we're going. So let me read that. Starts this way. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who didn't stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Let's pray. Father God, I just uh, thank you for your word, and I pray that you would now just give us um, understanding, give us revelation, open the eyes of our hearts, God, that we would hear and understand what you speak to us today, that we would know what you're saying and why it matters to our lives, God, so that we would be changed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for those things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, real quick recap. Verses one and two, Jude gives his introduction to the letter. So that's what's happening in verses one and two. He introduces himself, introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and as the brother of James. Okay? In verse 1, he also addresses his audience, who he's writing to, and he calls them those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, he speaks this amazing blessing over them. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then in verse 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4, Jude gets into the heart or purpose of why he's writing. And he says, here's why I'm writing. I'm writing to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is, contend for the Christian faith. And then he says, why, in verse 4? Because certain people have crept in, crept in among you unnoticed, 
who are perverting the grace of God and twisting the truth of God and causing other people to fall into unbelief and doubt, causing them to fall away from God. And so he says, listen, I'm Jude, I'm a servant of Jesus, I'm the brother of James. You guys are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. I pray that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to you. Now, I wanted to write to you something else, guys, but I was compressed to write to you to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because people have crept into the church unnoticed who are perverting the grace of God and causing people to fall away, twisting the truth. And then in verse 5, he launches then into seven Old Testament examples of people who perverted the truth of God or twisted the truth of God or who abandoned the faith or caused others to abandon the faith. And he uses these seven examples as an example and warning for us, for the church of today. And so we've been plowing through then that section where he's going through those Old Testament examples. Jude just flips them off like we know what he's talking about. He's like, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, now if we haven't done in-depth scripture study, we didn't know it the first time. So he's reminding them, but for us, we're like, okay, what are you talking about? If this is the first time we've read it, right? But for them, it was, it was, it was, you know, obvious knowledge because he just rolls through. He doesn't give in-depth descriptions. He just points them to the stories. He goes, remember how Israel, they're entering the promised land. They sent 12 spies in. 10 of them came back and said, we can't do it. Only two believe the report of the Lord. But those 10 caused everyone else to enter into unbelief. And because of that, they didn't enter the promised land. He says, these people that are creeping into the church and they're, and they're contradicting what God says, they're causing people to enter into unbelief and that's dangerous and that's deadly. Then he goes into, he says, remember the fallen angels who left their position and, and came amongst the, the daughters of men and, and those things. And then he, last week we looked at the example he points to of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, remember Sodom and Gomorrah who, who likewise, he says, indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire and they serve as an example he says they serve as an example to us by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire today we're going to look at Jude's fourth example and really for his fourth example he kind of points back to these false prophets so his fourth example is pointing back to these false prophets says, just like Israel and the fallen angels and Sodom and Gomorrah these people also in like manner these people are doing these things so let, let me read verses 8 through 10 again real quick because that's the bulk of our text for today. It says, yet in like manner, just like Israel, just like the fallen angels, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they don't understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So, what's going on there? It's three verses, but there's a lot that's happening. We're like, eh, what are you talking about? There's some weird stuff in there. We're going to cover it all, okay? I'm going to try to do it relatively quickly, okay? For Jude's fourth example, he gives us this more descriptive picture of these false prophets. So, let's dive into this, okay? What was their error? What was the error of these false prophets. And this scripture passage to me lists at least four things, okay? Let me give you them. Number one, it says they rely on their dreams. They rely on their dreams. You see that there in verse eight? Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. Other translations actually just say these filthy dreamers. And you go, wait a second, isn't dreaming good? What is he talking about, okay? 
So he, he, there's two, two definitions kind of in the original language of, of what this means. One is to dream means obviously to dream while asleep. You fall asleep, you have a dream. Okay? I don't think that's what he's referencing here. Okay? Because the second part of the definition is, is essentially to daydream in which a believer contemplates or meditates or dwells mentally on something. Okay? This is daydreaming, like meditating or dwelling on something else. You ever, you ever had a daydream? You ever been caught in a daydream, swept away by a train of thought, and, you, and, and a half hour later you're like, whoa, that was a rabbit trail. Okay? No, only me. Okay. So, so it happens to me all the time, right? Where, and that's what's happening here. And here's what he's saying. He's saying these people... Are, are, are contemplating things. They're thinking about, they're meditating on the things of God, okay? And they're coming back to the church and they're claiming to have revelation from God through all their meditating and thinking. They're claiming to have revelation from God. God has given me a vision for the church. God's given me a dream for the church. God's given me a prophetic word for the church. And they start teaching things that contradict the word of God. They've sat and done so much thinking, so much dreaming, and then they claim, oh, I have a word from God for the church. Let me teach you something about God, what God is like and what he, what he does, and they start teaching doctrine. And the problem is it doesn't line up with the truth of God's word. So they begin to speak and teach things that were not true. Now listen, if you have a dream, a vision, a revelation, a word from God about something that contradicts his written word, his already revealed will to us, it is false. That's as simple as we can put it, okay? It is a false vision. It is a false teaching. It is a false prophecy. If you go, I believe, you may believe it wholeheartedly. I absolutely believe, Jason, that God told me this, but it contradicts the revealed will of God and his word, God didn't tell you that, no matter how strongly you believe it. Okay, this is how we test prophecies. This is how we test teaching, is by the revealed will of God in his word. So I've had people say this to me all the time. I remember in youth ministry, this happened all the time. Uh, you, know, uh, I, you know, Jason, I know that what the Bible says, but God told me to date that unbeliever. Or God told me to marry that unbeliever. Or, or I know what the word of God says, but God's given me a revelation that all people will eventually be saved. Right? Or uh, even though I know, I know the Bible calls certain things a sin, but God told me that's not true. God, you see what I'm saying? So, so I don't want to act like those are crazy examples because those are examples that happen all the time. Someone I, I, I know and love dearly um, I remember sitting from them in several conversations and they, they were speaking something. They were contradicting the word of God and yet they were saying, I believe this is a prophetic word for the church. That God has given me a revelation, a prophetic word that this is what the church needs to hear and it directly contradicted the word of God. That over and over again is called false prophecy. Someone that teaches things that contradict the word of God are called false prophets. It's really simple. A true prophet speaks God's word. A false prophet undermines or contradicts God's word. It's real simple. A true prophet will speak the word of God. Everything that they say will line up with the word of God if they're a true prophet of God. 
And so I know we may have deeply held things that we feel like God appeared to me or God spoke to me or God gave me a sign or God showed me something or told me something for myself, for my life, for your life, for the church, for whatever. But if it doesn't line up with the word of God, it's a false teaching. And so what was happening is Judah saying, these people are relying on their dreams. They're not relying on the word of God. They're relying on their little revelations, their little dreams that they feel like are from God. And at that point, who's to judge one person's revelation or dream or vision from someone else's revelation or dream or vision? What's the standard? What do we measure all of those things against? It's the word of God. This we know is the word of God. So if your word from God doesn't line up with the word of God, is God contradicting himself? So that's super important. Judah's like, listen, don't get swayed by that. When someone says, oh, God said. A lot of people will say God said and then say things that God never said. Okay? Super important that we know the word and that we're in the word or that we're questioning the word. I love that passage I always tell you to write on your notes because this is true of my teaching and any teaching you ever hear. Acts chapter 17. I uh, forget the verse, but I'll give it to you. 20-something. 20 24, maybe? Check that. Somebody check that up on there. But it, but it talks about the Bereans. It says they gladly received the things that were spoken by Paul, and then they diligently searched the scriptures to see if they were true. That is, when you hear something, it may sound good to you, you may gladly receive it, but you have to do the next step. Diligently search the scriptures to see if they're true. How are you going to know if what somebody's telling you or teaching you is true? Search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. Okay? That's what Jude's saying here. These people are relying on their dreams. So when someone says, God's giving me a prophetic message for the church, the scriptures are God's prophetic word for the church. And they're how we test other prophetic words. So all other prophetic words, visions, revelations, dreams, or teachings must submit to the authority of God's word. We have to test these things. And if they don't line up with God's word, they're false. So they rely on their dreams. Number two, he says they defile the flesh. Look at there in verse 8 again. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. Defile the flesh. The word defile means to pollute or corrupt or stain. These people, here's most likely what was happening. A lot of scholars are kind of saying, okay, the background of this scenario, we don't know exactly who or what these people were saying, but we can gather from pieces, era, what was being taught at that time in the church. We can gather that these people were of a, a few different groups that would argue things like this. Well, God is a God of grace, so sin doesn't matter. In fact, if I don't sin, God, grace doesn't get a chance to operate. They were literally teaching those things. So either, well, you have to sin so that you can experience grace, literally teaching that, or teaching what is often taught nowadays, or what we act in and live in, is that, oh, listen, ah, I don't want to hear about that sin stuff, don't worry about that sin stuff. God is a God of grace. Don't worry about sin. When Paul deals with that teaching over and over and over again, he goes, should we sin then that grace should abound? He goes, certainly not. He says, when we do sin, grace does abound to us as believers. Praise God for that. But we, that does, that's not a license to go sin more. That's not a license to go live in the flesh. They would say, oh, we're spiritually saved, so the physical doesn't matter. We can do physically whatever we want to do. It's false teaching. And listen, there's a lot of people teaching this stuff in the church today or living that way or saying things. Like you start preaching about any sin at all, okay? You will be called a hellfire and brimstone preacher. You will be like, oh, stop about that. I just want to talk about the love and mercy and grace and goodness of God. Those are all true, but why do we need grace? Because of sin. 
Because God actually does care about sin. And the Bible's clear about that. Yes, God is a God of love and mercy and grace and kindness and patience and gentleness. Praise God he's like that. Praise God he is. That doesn't mean he doesn't care about sin. He does. So he's saying that these people are teaching things that, that are relying on their, their dreams and teaching things, and they're living in a way that defiles the flesh. They're living these, these corrupted, stained, polluted lives. I think I can live however I want. I'm teaching this stuff because I'm teaching grace. This is a danger of what many have called the hyper-grace movement, is I believe that God's grace is radical for every person who believes in him, absolutely. Repents and puts their trust in him and follows him. Absolutely, God's grace is radical. But we go too far when we say, and because of that, don't forget about sin. Like, just, just forget about it. Sin doesn't matter. No, sin, sin matters. And overcoming sin matters. And grace is part of what empowers us to overcome areas of sin in our lives. Without the power, without the empowerment of God's grace, we can't do it. So many people or teach these things and live. They go, I think I can live however I want and think that God's grace will cover me. And many of us wouldn't maybe say this. Many people in the church wouldn't actually say that out loud. Oh, I can live however I want. But we show by our lives that we believe that. Okay? So there's a, there's a, a phenomenon in the Western church. It's really strong, pr- predominantly in the West, especially here in places where, you know, I guess, I get it. We're not cool to be Christians here, but we're not persecuted like they are in the Middle East or somewhere else. Like you're a Christian, you stand up and say you're a Christian in Baghdad, it's a little different than saying you're a Christian in Yucaipa. Okay? It's a big difference. I don't face persecution like they do. Okay? We sure don't. So, so it's, I was thinking this funny story, man, because there's this, this phenomenon of what we call name tag Christians here in the West. That is people who say they're Christians, but literally don't even know or or agree with or understand half of kind of core doctrines of Christianity, certainly don't live to follow Christ. They just say I'm a Christian. It's a name tag. And they live just like everyone else who's not a Christian. So I'm not, again, it's not, this is not in any judgmental way because I've got plenty of sins every day, every minute of every day that God is dealing with me in my heart. What I'm saying is, and I heard somebody else say this, but it's so powerful, it stuck with me. He said, if we have rooms of people, filled with people who claim to have the spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, by the way, the Holy Spirit of the living God living inside of us, and we look, talk, act, sound no different than those without the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them, there's a disconnect. There's a problem. Perhaps we're just saying we're Christians and we're not actually filled with the Spirit of God. Because having the Spirit of God inside of you will, over time, produce transformation, heart transformation, life transformation. And so this pastor's talking about how he went, I think, somewhere in the Middle East, and he says, or maybe it was China, it was China, and he said, you know, they're persecuted there, they can't own Bibles, they can't do a lot of stuff, they can't meet openly without being a sanctioned church all those things, and this, this pastor's there, he says, everybody's so passionate for Jesus. Everybody's so on fire. Where are your name tag Christians? And the guy was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, the people who just say they're Christians, but they don't live it. And the guy's like, that's not computing, man. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, we don't have those here. It's like, what do you mean? 
We don't have those here. Everybody has those. He goes, no, we, we don't have those. Because here, if you get baptized publicly, you could, you could be killed for that. You could be shot. And so when people say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and they get baptized, and they publicly profess their faith that way, they've already counted the cost and have said in their hearts and their minds, I'm willing to die for this. This is my life. Here, we go, please just come to church every once in a while. We'll give you a free iPad. Right? Hey, oh, if I do more smoke and mirrors and entertainment and lighting shows and big screens, maybe that'll entertain you enough. Maybe if I make the kids class like Disneyland, you know, maybe if I pop a hot latte in your hands and we do, and we just, all the creature comforts you could ever need and we make it super entertaining and the, and the worship band's like rocking, like awesome. And then, and then the sermon's just enough witty and funny and deep and make, maybe it makes you cry a little bit, makes you feel a little bit, but gets you out in time for Sunday kickoff. So this is a thing of people who claim to be Christians and yet live just like the rest of the world. Does that mean that those who are truly saved don't struggle with sin? No, don't hear that in what I'm saying. Every one of us will, every breath until the last day on earth. We're gonna struggle with sin. We're going to war. Our spirit is going to war with the flesh. That's what Romans talks about all over the place. Man, I see this law in me. My flesh wants things that dishonor the spirit of God all the time, and I have this war going on inside of me. But we're in the battle. Okay? We're not giving over to sin. It's not just name tag Christian stuff. This is the spirit of God has really come to live inside of me and is doing some work on the house. There's a remodeling project happening inside of me. So these people, number one, rely on their dreams. Number two, they defile their flesh. That is, they just, they give, giving themselves over to sin are corrupted by it. living in sin and claiming godly things. Number three, they reject authority. They reject authority. Verse eight, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority. The word reject here could mean to set aside, to ignore, to break faith with, to refuse to respect. To ignore authority, to set aside authority, to break faith with authority, to refuse to respect authority. So he says these people reject authority. What authority? Well, they, they reject the authority of God by rejecting the authority of his word and teaching things that are contrary. They, they reject the authority of the church and God's people and appointed Leaders, because of their pride. Now remember, he talked about pride earlier. Because of their pride, he's pointing to all these examples where pride ruins people. Because of their pride, these false prophets, false teachers, always have a problem with authority. Authority is a bad word to them. And that's rampant in our culture and in the church. Uh, we have this averse reaction to even the word authority. Submit to authority. How does that make you feel? If I said those three words to you, hey, submit to authority. You need to submit to authority. Many people just have this just knee-jerk reaction to that idea. Submit to authority. So because of their pride, they almost always have a problem with authority. They, re they reject the authority of God because they're proud enough to think they don't need him. Okay? They reject the authority of God's word because they're proud enough to think that they know better. I know that's what God's word says, but I, I disagree. I actually think whatever. 
You see the pride in that? It claims to be humility. It pretends like they're, people who pretend like they're humble and they go, well, I know the Bible says that, but we can't really know anything. Like, we can't really know. We can know everything that God tells us. We can take it to the bank. I can't know anything on my own. I can only know what God chooses to reveal to me about him. And yet, when he does, I can know that for sure. Right? So they reject the authority of God's word because they're proud to think they know better. They reject the authority of the church because they're too proud to submit to other people when over and over and over again, we're told to submit to God, but also to, to the authorities, the people authorities that God has placed over us in many different aspects of life. Listen, respect for authority is one of the most important things we can teach our kids. I really believe that. Respect for authority is one of the most important things we can teach our kids. And here's why. If they're not taught to respect their parents, they're going to struggle to respect other authority figures like teachers, like bosses, like city leaders and government officials and law enforcement, and ultimately, most damagingly, God himself. Children who learn to respect and obey their parents will find it much easier to respect and obey God. And over and over and over again in the scriptures, we see people talk. David, in the, in, the, in the scriptures, David was anointed as king. Saul is the king, okay? David is chosen by God to replace him. Saul gets insanely jealous and begins to hunt David's life. David is now running and hiding in caves of the earth, hiding from Saul and all of his armies. Saul is chasing him in madness, just mad rage and jealousy coming after David. David has a few opportunities to kill Saul. One time, David's hiding in a cave with his men. Saul comes in in this dark cave and to, to use the restroom. And from what I understand, it was the kind that took some time because they had a good conversation, okay? So, so it was, hey, the men are saying to David, here's your opportunity. He's right in this cave. He doesn't even know you're here. You could go up and kill him right now. And in this madness, you've already been anointed and chosen by God to be the king. And the present reigning king is hunting your life. He's trying to kill you. So just kill him. And you've got the throne. All your problems are over. David doesn't do that. David goes, cuts a piece of his, his clothes off, lets Saul go out, get across the ridge. And then he goes, hey, Saul. I've got you close. I just came out of the cave that you used the restroom and I could have killed you, but I didn't. David said to his men, far be it from me to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. <clears throat> what? <laughs> what? I got a problem if somebody throws me attitude. I had a boss that was rude to me many, many years ago. Awful and rude. And I got a problem with, with that. Imagine that my boss was hunting my life, trying to kill me. And my response was, far be it from me to disrespect authority. God's appointed that one in that position over me, and he can take him down if he wants to, but that's not my job. You see that kind of respect for authority that David had? Because it was respect for the Lord that caused him to respect authority. He's like, if God's anointed me and God has pulled him from the throne, God is able to make that happen. It's not my job to go murder him. Okay, so don't murder your boss. <laughs> so these people reject authority. Number four, they blaspheme. They blaspheme. I have it spelled there in your notes underneath that. And if you're not super familiar with that word, as most of us are not, 
Don't trip. We're going to define it here in a second. But let me read verses 8 through 10 again. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority. And here it is. Blaspheme the glorious ones. Look at verse 10. But, when these, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So what is it to blaspheme? What does blaspheme mean? It means to speak irreverently about God or sacred things. That is, I speak about God or about sacred things without any reverence. Okay? The Greek language here, that's a dictionary definition. The Greek language here would say to blaspheme is to vilify. That is, to make somebody a villain. To speak of them poorly. To vilify, to speak impiously, to defame, to revile, to speak evil, to use abusive language. And so it's to speak without reverence, it's to speak evil of, it's to speak abusively of, it's to vilify, it's to make somebody seem bad, to paint somebody in a bad light, to be disrespectful in that sense. That's what blaspheming is, okay? Who and what are these people speaking evil of? Well, it gives us at least two things. A, it says they, they blaspheme the glorious ones in verse 8. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Who, who is he talking about? He doesn't say directly, but it's probably the angels because of the context. So I don't know what these false teachers were saying, but in some way they were blaspheming probably the angels. They were speaking evil of all angels, and angels are God's special creation, a unique creation of God's, and they were speaking things that, that, were, that were blasphemous about angels. But so it's probably the angels. We're going to come back to that, why, why it's probably the angels, because the context kind of tells us that. But it could also have other meaning. Other translations say they speak evil of dignitaries. Instead of they blaspheme the glorious ones, it would say they speak evil of dignitaries. The Greek word that's here is the word doxa, which is where we get the word glory. Okay, But it also means renown, honor, splendor of an especially divine quality. That is, here's the point. Here's the point that the Jude is making. These people have no problem bad-mouthing angels or speaking evil of honorable people or things. Things that are godly, the things of God, the things that are sacred and good and godly, these people have no problem bad-mouthing those things or bad-mouthing those people. So that's A. They speak, they blaspheme the glorious ones. B they blaspheme, in verse 10 it says, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. Blaspheme all that they do not understand. Now, 1 Corinthians, write this one down because it's, it's a helpful verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. That verse tells us that people without the Spirit of God inside of them cannot understand or accept the truth that comes from God. So, so think about that. It says it's people without the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God living inside of you, those people can't understand or accept the truth that comes from God. It sounds like foolishness to them. And they can't understand it because only spiritual people, people filled with the Spirit of God, can understand what the Spirit says and means. That's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us. That is that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. It's not just a pure mental exercise. There's spiritual work going on. I remember, let me just give you an example of how this works, okay? I remember before I was following Jesus, okay? I always claimed to believe in God. I was, I was kind of raised knowing the gospel and, and believing, check, 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 I believe that. I believe Jesus lived, died for my sins, rose again, all that stuff. Check, yep, 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 I believe it, but I wasn't following him at all. 
I do not believe that I was filled with the Spirit of God. I don't believe that I had the Spirit of God living inside of me. Uh, when I came to that point, I remember before that, I would I'd read all kinds of stuff. I, I've always been a reader since I was very little. I read volumes. I used to read the dictionary just for fun. I'd read the encyclopedia. I would learn new words just, uh, just for fun, just to do it. Like I, That's how I was going to kill my time. I loved all the other stuff too. I'd go play basketball, ride my bike, do all that. But then sometimes what I just want to do, all I want to do right now is just read the dictionary or read a book or read this book or that. So as an adult... I'm, I was reading all kinds of stuff, reading Shakespeare, I love that, like everybody does, you know, maybe not everybody, but I'm reading like French poetry, you know, uh, reading Arthur Rimbaud, Season in Hell, stuff like that, I mean, I'm reading all kinds of stuff, okay, but I would pick up the Bible my parents gave me when I was a young kid, and I'd dust that sucker off every once in a while, and then jump outside on my smoke break, and okay, I'm going to read some of this, and I'd get through one paragraph, and I'd go, What? It doesn't make any sense. And I go back and I read it again and I'm trying to track, like, what's happening here? Like, wow, okay. That word? I know these words. Like, okay, here we go. I read it and then I go, what? I don't know what's being said. I don't know the point of what's being said here. And I'm not saying this happens with everybody, but I remember for me, it was like, it was like flipping on a light switch the day that I made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, to get off the fence and stop being a name tag Christian and stop just saying I believe that stuff, but follow him. And I surrendered my heart and I surrendered my life to him. And I was like, well, I guess I better start reading the Bible now. And I remember going to the Bible with a sense of foreboding, like, whoo, okay, this is going to be rough. I remember picking it up, and I, I think in that first day, read three books of the Bible, devouring it, understanding it felt like, I know I didn't, but understanding what felt like every word. It was life to me. It was, all of a sudden, it was like I was awake to it. Now, I had plenty of questions, and praise God, there were godly men around me. Uh, Pastor Don at Oak Valley Church was one of them who gave me his number, and he said, hey, as you read, you're going to have questions. Use my number. Call me. And man, did I. I burned that number up. And that man of God walked me through so many things. Praise God. All right, what the heck is this? What's going on here? I'm reading some stuff in Genesis, some of the stuff we read last week. I'm like, whoa. Hey, what's happening here? And how does that serve the purpose of God? And he walked me through some stuff. Okay? So it doesn't mean we're not going to have questions. It doesn't mean we're going to understand every passage that's coming in. But if you're struggling to understand the scriptures, ask God to help start giving you understanding. Talk to other believers fight to get understanding because that's one of the ways that the enemy steals the word from us instead of doing what these people are doing it says when these people don't understand spiritual things because they don't have the spirit of God inside of them they blaspheme those things they speak evil of them they speak of them without any reverence Jude then gives us an interesting example and we saw it in verse 9 he says this let me read verse 9 again and he's basically saying, even when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, when they were disputing about the body of Moses, the archangel Michael even then didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. First of all, what, what the heck is happening here, okay? So let me, let me bring up to speed, track with me real quick. Jude is actually making reference to, you know how a couple weeks ago we talked about how Jude made reference to the book of Enoch, Okay, which is not in our Bible, it's just a book that's outside of the Bible, but one that his audience knew very well. And so he referenced that, and he makes his point. He's now referencing another book that's outside of our Bible. It's a book called The Assumption of Moses. Okay? So our Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 34, 
tells us of the story of Moses' death. Moses, the one who led the, the Egyptian people, or sorry, the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery through the wilderness to the very borders of the promised land. He ended up disobeying God in something very, very important at the last minute. And God said, because of that, you're not going to enter the promised land. He died on the outskirts of the promised land. Okay? And uh, so that's, that story is told in Deuteronomy. If you want to read it, Deuteronomy chapter 34. Moses dies on the edge of the promised land for disobeying the Lord. Now, this book, The Assumption of Moses, this book that Jude's readers would have known very well, goes on to add the further story that Michael the archangel, okay, think good angel, Michael the archangel, was given the task of burying Moses' body. It's like God said, you go take care of, of Moses' body, okay? But the devil came and argued with him about possession of the body. The devil was arguing that, that he had a right to Moses' body because Moses had committed murder earlier in his life and many other things. This is all in the assumption of Moses, that book, okay? So there was a dispute between these two angels, Michael, the archangel, and, and the devil, a fallen angel, and they were disputing, according to this book, The Assumption of Moses, they were disputing over the body of Moses. Now, Jude knows that his readers know that. Jude obviously knows that story from The Assumption of Moses. His readers know that. And as he's making his point here, he says, now, even when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil himself, he didn't he wasn't so presumptuous as to, as to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil. Like if we can't say, you see, he says, he didn't do that. He says, he says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord, he says, he still had so much respect for the fact that Satan was a created creature of God's that he wouldn't even blaspheme the devil. He says, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. And trust me, the Lord rebukes the devil. What he's, the point he's making is, where's our respect? Where's our, where's our, he says, these people have no respect and they're just blaspheming. All that they don't understand, they're blaspheming the glorious ones, they're blaspheming angels, they're blaspheming godly people. They're just speaking blasphemous judgments against all people. And even Michael the archangel didn't even blaspheme the devil. If there's anyone that should be okay to blaspheme, it's the devil. But he says he didn't even do that. To make that point, he points to that book, The Assumption of Moses, and the story that's there. He's saying even in that chain of events, M Michael the archangel spoke no evil of the devil, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Jude's point is clear. If the greatest of God's good angels refuse to speak evil of the most prominent fallen angel, the devil himself, then surely no human being should speak evil of anything that has to do with God. Any angel, any person, any one of the things of God, any one of the Lord's anointed people that we should be so careful when we find ourselves pronouncing blasphemous judgments against people or the things of God or speaking without respect. So I'm not exactly sure what kind of evil or irreverent things these people were specifically saying about the angels or about other people, but it's clear that this is a strong rebuke to anyone who would speak irreverently about the things of God. Does that make sense? So this was their error. They relied on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme God's holy ones and everything that they don't understand. That was their rebellion. And their rebellion led to their destruction. That's what he's saying. Verse 10, these people blaspheme all that they don't understand. And look at this phrase, 
and they are destroyed by all that they do understand instinctively, like unreasoning animals. You see that? I switched the words up a little bit to help us understand what's happening here. Like, they're destroyed by what they understand instinctively. They blaspheme what they don't understand. They speak evil of what they don't understand. And they're destroyed by what? They're destroyed by the things that they understand instinctively, like unreasoning animals. The New Living Translation says it this way. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. Does that help make sense of what's happening here? Such several different translations to bring out kind of the heart of what's being said here. And that was probably the simplest. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever they're... So he says, all the spiritual things that they don't understand, they speak evil of those. But there's a lot of things that we as people just understand instinctively, like unreasoning animals. Right? And so we give way to them. We just do whatever our instincts tell us. We follow our instincts instead of following God. He says, and because they did that, they brought about their own destruction. So since these false prophets, since these false teachers reject authority and reject the truth of God's word, all they can understand and live by are their most base animal instincts. And that has corrupted their minds, Judas said. Like unreasoning animals. They can't, they've lost the ability to reason because they're just living like animals. Their minds are corrupted. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, and then we're going to read verse 28. It says this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But look at this. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to, circle these two words, a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So he says, because they reject God, they become futile in their thinking and they have a debased mind. They become like unreasoning animals because they've rejected God. Listen, when you reject the truth of God, all there is left to live by are your most base primitive animal instincts. And then what we do is we go, it's just who I am. It's just how I'm created. It's just natural. It's just my instincts. And we live at, and no one's arguing that. Of course it's natural. Of course it's your instincts. God is saying that certain instincts that you have will kill you. He says it all over scripture. I know that feels natural to you. I know you want to do that. I know that's a fleshly desire. I know that's an instinct of yours. Animals have that instinct. I know that that's your instinct. I'm telling you that will bring about your destruction. So because we reject that truth, we just live by our instincts. This is, that brings about our destruction. Look at, look at the New Living Translation of Romans 1 says this. Since they thought it was foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking. Go ahead. Go, go off into your foolish thinking. Have it. So these people, interestingly, it says, these people who claim to be wise reject the authority of God and live to follow their own instincts satisfy their own desires and heed their own counsel. And this brings about their destruction. Bottom line is this, if we are not submitted to the authority of God and to his word, we can't trust our instincts. If I'm not submitted to the authority of God and to his word, I can't trust my instincts. I have all kinds of instincts that are against me. Your flesh is not for you. So what do we do it's heavy. It's all heavy. Jude's heavy. But what do we do with that? Okay? How do we, what's our response? Let me read the last passage of Scripture I want to read today. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Because I think this is a helpful 
kind of direction for us to take after such a strong warning like that. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let me give you these fill-in-the-blanks. Let me do them real quick. First is this. Submit to God. Submit to God. We got to get back to submission. Surrender. You are God and I am not. I am in submission to you. you don't, you're not like the genie in the lamp or in my pocket that I just get to pull out and rub and ask for help whenever I need it. You're not submitted to me. I'm submitted to you. So submit to God. Submit to his word. Submit to his authority. Submit to his will. Then it says this, resist the devil. Resist the devil. A lot of people talk about, oh, the devil's really beating me up. The devil's really giving me a hard time. Are you even resisting? Do you resist? Nobody knows the strength of, you know, C.S. Lewis said this. No, the guy who knows the, how strong and difficult sin is, temptation is, is the one who wrestles against it. Not the one who just gives himself over to it every time. Every time you're tempted, you cave in, you don't know the strength of temptation. If every time temptation comes, you fight with it, you wrestle with it, that's the one who knows the strength of temptation. Are you resisting the devil? I remember this fight I was in. Man, I'm way over time, but I'm going to tell you this because it's going to help illustrate the point. Okay? I'd, got, I'd run my mouth. I had a big brother that used to fight all my fights for me when I was in elementary school. So I'd play basketball. And, you know, you get to just jaw and talk and trash and whatever, right? So I remember being in, like, I think fifth grade and uh, playing basketball, talking trash. And then, you know, somebody wants to get in a fight because, you know, I ran my mouth. I, I was a little kid with a big mouth. And... Um, and I thought, cool, whatever, because I got a big brother who everybody was afraid of. He was big, and he could fight. So, so I'd start getting in trouble, and my big brother would show up, and he'd handle business for me. I'm like, I'm good. So one day, I'm getting in this, this, this drama with somebody, same kind of thing, running our mouths, whatever. He's like, that's it, man. He rode the bus with me, right? He's like, that's it, bro. All right, when we get off the bus, like, it's going down. We're going to fight. And I'm like, sweet, dude, let's, let's do this. Because in my head, I'm thinking, that's plenty of time to get my brother. I'm good. He rides the bus with me, too. Let's roll. So we get on the bus, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember. Hey, uh... I need you to handle this guy for me. Like, he's about to fight. Like whatever. And this guy was bigger than me. This guy could whip my butt, right? But I wasn't worried about it because he couldn't whip my brother's butt. So, so I'm telling my brother, I'm like, hey, you need to, I need you to handle this guy for me. And this day he goes, no, not this time. And I was like, whoa, time out. Yes, this time. Yes, absolutely this time. And he's like, no, 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 because see what happens is you run your mouth and then you get yourself in trouble and then end up having to fight all your fights for you. So you're never going to learn to stop running your mouth and you're never going to learn how to fight for yourself if you don't fight. So you got to do this one. And I was like, no, no, I'll do the next one, bro. Lesson learned. I got it. Okay. I'll do the next one. Okay. Uh, do this one for me because I can't. He's like, no, I'm sorry. So, so he abandoned me in my moment of need. I'm just kidding. He did the right thing. Uh, it was good. But here's what happened. So I square up with this guy, fifth grade, but it was real. This was rocky to me. Okay. It was like happening. So I'm there, we're face to face. I don't know what to, I don't know what to do. I'm like, whatever, I've only ever fought my, my brother, you know? And uh, so I'm like, okay, uh, I'm just kind of standing there, kind of arms down, I have no stance, I'm just kind of standing there. And this guy is apparently some kind of kickboxer or something. So he starts doing his thing, and he does this straight up, I kid you not, roundhouse kick to my skull. Just boom. My head's throbbing, first kick. And I just kind of come back up, and I'm dazed. I'm like, whoo. 
And he does it again. Bam! Same thing. You'd think by the third kick I'd put my arms up. I didn't do it. Bam! I take another one. This guy must have kicked me easily more than ten times in the same way. I never did one defensive tactic. I didn't throw one punch. I didn't do any. I didn't try to tackle him. I didn't even try to tickle him. I didn't do anything to this guy. I did nothing to resist this guy's attack, and I just got whooped. He got tired of kicking me. That's how the fight ended. He got tired of kicking me, and he goes, Are you had enough? And I was like, yeah, uh, yep. He's like, all right, throw it in your mouth again. I was like, noted. <laughs> right? And we just walked off. <laughs> I tell that story just to say that that's what's happening with us and the devil so many times. As we're just talking, boom, oh, and the devil's really beat me up, boom, oh, the devil's really, boom. We're not doing anything to resist the devil. Scripture says, submit to God and resist the devil. Stand against his attack. Stand against the temptation. Resist it. Fight it. Do something. Don't just stand there and take 10 roundhouse kicks to the head. Right? Until the devil's tired of kicking you. Don't do it. Fight. Get in the battle. Resist the devil. Okay, then it says this. I said I'd give them to you quick, and we all knew I was going to lie when I said that. So, draw near to God. Draw near to God. The nearness of God is our only hope, guys. Being close and intimate, near to God. That's our only hope. So he says, draw near to God. Don't push away from God. Don't push away from his word. When you start having stuff that you can't understand, when you start struggling, when you start hearing teachings that contradict the word of God, don't draw away from God. He says, draw near to God. Draw near to him. And he says this, purify yourselves. You find sin in yourself, guys? Purify yourself. This is a process we're going to go through every day of our lives. It's not trudgery. It's okay. This is joyful work to go, okay, God, help me, help me. He says, purify yourself. And I love this because he says, he says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Hands and hearts. Hands, actions, what we're doing. Hearts, motives. Sometimes it's what we're doing that needs cleanse. Sometimes it's why we're doing it. Right? Sometimes it's both. But sometimes we're doing good things, but our motives are impure. That's why he says, purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands, deal with your actions, and deal with your motives if there's something impure in there. And then it says this, mourn, all this mourning stuff. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is he talking about? Mourn over sin. Mourn over sin. That is, I should be grieved not, not buried by condemnation, but I should be stung in my heart. I should be grieved when I find sin in my heart. When God shows me something that is not pleasing to him, it should grieve me. When I look out at a world that is rejecting God and running away from his truth of his word, it should grieve me. I should have a sense of mourning over sin in my own heart and sin in the world. I should care about sin. I shouldn't just be like, well, whatever, have this cavalier attitude towards sin in my own life or sin in the world. I shouldn't just be like flippant about it. This is mourn over that. Actually feel something when you see sin in yourself and sin in the world. Mourn over that. And then it says this, humble yourself. Humble yourself. So all you're filling the blanks are this. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Purify yourself. Mourn over sin and humble yourself. Now those are all, that's heavy, it's a tall order, 
We can't do that without the Spirit of God. But did you see the promise that was in those verses too? It's a lot of directives. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, purify yourself, mourn over sin, humble yourself. And if we just stop there, we think, oh, I got to do a lot of stuff. We have a part to play. But did you see the beautiful promises that were in there, the encouraging stuff? It says, if you do these things, resist the devil, and what will happen? And he will flee from you. Right? It says, draw near to God, and what will happen? God will draw near to you. Humble yourself, and what will happen? And he will exalt you. So we give ourselves to these things. We do the work, and we find them in our heart. We find ourselves questioning and walking into areas of unbelief and blasphemy and rejecting authority and whatever, all these things that were just mentioned. And when we find that in our heart, what do we do? We submit to God, we resist the devil, we draw near to God, we purify ourselves, we mourn over sin, we humble ourselves. And the promise of scripture is if we do that, the devil will flee from us, God will draw near to us, and he will exalt us in his time. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this word of challenge, this word of stirring. And Lord, I pray that there is encouragement in there for all of our hearts as well, Lord. Uh, I just pray that you would just fill us with your Holy Spirit. Transform us from the inside. Begin that work of remodeling us, Lord. Continue that work of remodeling us, making us more and more like Jesus Christ. I pray that you would build us up and encourage us in you as we follow you. Help us to draw near to you. Keep us from these errors, these, these things that serve as a warning for us. Help us to heed these warnings and to follow you with all of our hearts. I pray, God, that every one of us would live to bring you glory, that we would know that our lives, the reason we exist is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.